right, good morning. It's good to see you today. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, where we've been uh, for a number of weeks, and John chapter 13 is where we're going to be today in our, in our Gospel of John series. Uh, to start things off, I want to talk about a single word, and it's maybe not one of your favorite words. It's the word embarrassment, embarrassments. I often begin my sermons with embarrassment one way or another. Um, but uh, I, I sent out this sort of crowdsourcing request this week. Maybe it's a lazy preacher thing. And I said, hey, on Facebook, can anybody help me with my sermon? Tell me one of your most embarrassing moments. And I thought, you know, I'll get a few stories. I'll get a few. I said, you know, you can private message me for anonymity if you like. And about 70 comments later... <laughs> 70 comments, you know, I thought normally you have to have a baby or say something about politics to get 70 comments, um, but this wasn't as painful as either one of those things. 70 comments later, I had all the information that I could ever want um, about embarrassing moments. And so here are just a few of these, this is a sampling from, from some of us in Grace and some of us uh, around the country. A friend of mine who's a pastor a pastor, Stephen, he says this, my first time preaching was to a very elderly congregation. I was very nervous, and in my pastoral prayer, I prayed that, quote, the old would pass away and the new would come. <laughs> this, this next one's from a fellow professor. I was encouraging a female student once, and I told her to meditate on Proverbs 5.3. I meant Proverbs 3.5, uh, because Proverbs 5.3, I learned, was, quote, the lips of an adulteress drip like honey. <laughs> uh, maybe this next one, this one's from a friend of mine, maybe you've done this. Uh, on my freshman year of college, I meant to send a text about a boy I had a crush on to one of my friends, but I accidentally sent the text to said boy, all caps, mortified, was the, uh, was the end of that one. Uh, this one I like because it's very succinct. A friend of mine named Paul, he's also a pastor, he writes, third grade flag football, period. Tear away shorts, period. <laughs> Tidy whities period. And that's all it said. I won't give away this person. They said, uh, my husband and I walked into Remax and asked for blank, our realtor. The lady smirked and said, uh, she's across the street at Keller Williams. So... Um, my friend Renee, she says this, I was juggling texts between a few people, uh, two of whom were my boss and my husband, and I texted my boss, quote, I love you, you have no idea how much you mean to me, period. <laughs> and then this last one, one of my personal favorites, once I was working at a university and I got let go, HR was with me at my desk helping me pack, and one of the professors walked by, he didn't know, and jokingly said, packing up your stuff, huh? That professor was Dr. McNall, which <laughs> didn't appreciate that one as much. But anyway, here's my thesis. Embarrassment usually, almost always, equals a violation, a breaking of decorum, right? It's a violation of decorum. It's a violation of, of etiquette. It's a violation of, of common manners. It's not proper manners to walk by your secretary when she's, you know, being told that she's been let go and, like, joke about the fact that she's been let go. It's not 
common etiquette to, uh, you know, text the boy that you have a crush on when you don't intend to, I suppose. So embarrassment is a violation of decorum. It's a violation of etiquette. We've, we've all experienced it. And we think of decorum as a good thing. I mean, at least I do. In most instances, like, I think of decorum as a good thing. You would never say, you know, you know what I really like about Josh? Just total lack of decorum. I love that about him. And a total lack of manners. And as parents, we spend most of our time, even me this morning, most of our time trying to kind of enforce proper decorum, proper etiquette. And it's certainly not a sin in most instances to observe proper decorum, which brings us to the apparently heretical sermon title for this week's message. If you noticed it in your update, the title of the message is Decorum, the Unforgivable Sin. And I guess if you're going to get attention, that's, that's one way to do it. But the question is, well, what in the world is going on with that strange and apparently maybe even heretical sermon title? It's not a sin to observe decorum. I don't believe that there's any sin that can't be forgiven by the grace of God when we confess our sins, right? So what's all this about decorum as the unforgivable sin? Here's my big idea today. My big idea is that while a concern for decorum, for etiquette, for manners, for a proper appearances is usually a good thing, it is not always so. And in some cases, our concern for what is deemed proper can actually keep us from Jesus. In some cases, our sense of decorum for respectable appearances is what keeps us from Jesus and what Jesus wants for our lives. And so I'm going to try to prove that to you, that kind of strange big idea through this passage in John chapter 13. So if you've got your Bibles, we'll begin in, in verse 1. It says this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, this is the line I want to focus on. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's word. There's probably four or five sermons that I could preach out of this passage. It's a long passage. There's a lot in the passage. But I want to focus on this one, this one moment and this one interaction between Jesus and between his, in many ways, his lead disciple, a guy by the name of Simon Peter. When Simon Peter says, no, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus responds, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. I want to focus on that, that one moment and through the lens of this word we've mentioned already, a lens of decorum. And so the first, the first observation is a pretty obvious one. Every culture has rules of decorum, and they're different rules for different cultures. I remember when I went to Africa the first time, we didn't know some of the rules of decorum, and we unintentionally violated some of the rules of decorum, right? It's sort of a, the stereotypical Western American missionary failure. Every culture has rules of decorum. I, I've mentioned before that my... I did my doctorate over in England, and I had a very proper Scottish Tory supervisor. His favorite line was, John Wesley was a monarchist and a Tory, and so am I. And he loved the Queen. He was a huge fan of the Queen. And a few years ago, the Kansas City Royals, blessed be their name, won the World Series after basically an entire lifetime for me of being terrible. And so there was a picture that somehow made it over to uh, where I went to school in England of a Royals pitcher, I couldn't find this, with the head of the queen photoshopped on his body to sort of celebrate the Royals. And my supervisor walked people, a couple people, you know, chuckled at it, isn't that cute, you know. He walked by and in all seriousness yelled out in his Scottish brogue, I can't do it, but he said, that is treason <laughs> to Photoshop the queen's head on a royal's pitcher. And I don't know if he was entirely, I don't know if he was joking, to be honest, right? Every culture has rules of decorum. If you grow up in the South, one of the rules of decorum in many families is you never call an adult, if you're a, a youngster, by their first name, right? You say, sir and ma'am, right? Uh, there's rules of decorum in every culture. And in this passage, the rule of decorum that gets broken is something that's in many ways foreign to our culture. It's a rule that has to do with who does the foot washing? Who does the foot washing? This job of slaves, the job of the lowest of the low, who does the foot washing? And Jesus violates decorum in a big way, in a way that we can't really understand because we don't practice you know, foot washing before every, every meal. But it's not just in this passage. You could say this way. The next, the next idea is that Jesus often violates these norms. Jesus repeatedly breaks issues of etiquette, of decorum, of manners on what seemed to be proper and respectable and normal. And I could list 
just case after case. These are just a few of the cases where Jesus breaks decorum. He talks to a Samaritan woman alone in public knowing full well her sexual past. That's five right there in case you're counting. (laughs) In one moment, he breaks five of the big cultural no-nos in terms of decorum. Samaritan, woman, alone, public, knowing full well her sexual past. He eats with sinners. He eats with tax collectors. He eats with prostitutes. And that's one of the things that gets him in the most trouble throughout his ministry is who he eats with in, in his relationships. He touches lepers. He touches the dead. He is touched by a bleeding, unclean woman in a culture where touch and purity were huge issues of decorum. It would render you unclean. And yet somehow in Jesus' case, coming in contact with the unclean causes it to work backwards. But he breaks the rule of decorum. He heals on the Sabbath. He calls Yahweh the transcendent creator God, Abba, this term of intimate fatherly endearment. Jesus often violates decorum. And he does it, I would say this, next slide. He does it not to be edgy or to just be controversial for the sake of being controversial, but in some cases he does it to show that his kingdom cuts against our comfort. It will cut against those things that we find to be normal or respectable or proper in terms of their appearance, and it will many times cut against our comfort. And he does it repeatedly in his ministry. One of my favorite parts of this passage, verse 3, it says, it says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and that he was returning to God. And then there's this little word, just two letters. It says, so. So in light of what he knows about his identity as coming from God and returning to God and being in control of all things, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. And I think that that little word so is like the most interesting word in that whole series of verses. Because what it says is, for Jesus, lowly service is motivated by an awareness of his exalted status. Because he knew who he was, who his father was, it says, so he picked up the basin and the towel, and it's the exact opposite of what cultural decorum would say, right? The cultural decorum would say, because you have a lowly, slave-like, servile status, because you're low on the social totem pole, therefore, here's the basin and the towel. And Jesus completely flips it and says, because I'm at the absolute top of the ladder, because I am the Son of God, Therefore, I serve. My lowly service is motivated by an awareness of my exalted status, Jesus says. And so you would say, well, what's the application here for us? Because it cuts against the rules of decorum. And maybe one of the things you could say is that when you are secure in your identity, you can lower yourself in service 
without losing yourself in shame. Amen? When you are secure in who you are in Christ, to pick up the basin and the towel is not to debase yourself and to admit that you are a failure or that you're worth less than somebody else. When you are secure in your identity in Christ, you can lower yourself without losing yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Because I came from the Father, I know who I am. I can serve anybody without this sense that somehow you know, I'm worse than them or, or they're, they're better than me. And it's, it's a crucial insight. Without losing sight of your beloved, exalted identity as a child of the King. You've heard me quote this, this line from Martin Luther King Jr. and he talks about work and he says, no work is insignificant. All labor, that, uh, all labor that uplifts humanity has dignity and importance and should be undertaking, undertaken with painstaking excellence. Even if it's labor that is seen as mundane or servant's work. King says this, he says, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or as Beethoven composed music or as Shakespeare wrote poetry. When you're secure in your identity, you can lower yourself in service without losing yourself in, in shame. Jesus says, I know who I am. I know who my Father is, and so I will serve. And that service, as it often does, puts kingdom over comfort. Right? I don't know about you, it's not really that fun to serve. I don't really like it that much. Um, there are some tasks that carry with them a remarkable amount of pride and sort of esteem. There are some jobs that carry with them like that sort of aura of respectableness and there are some that don't and yet Jesus calls us to serve as, as he did and we think about all the ways that we're called to do that all the opportunities that we have to do that maybe it's children's ministry here at Grace I've said oftentimes that you know I'll, I'll, if I do a good job preaching I'll get you know so many pats on the back and if I do a bad job I'll get some emails but the teachers that teach my kids about Jesus are doing a job that is just as important, if not more so, than mine. Whether it's leading in some unseen corner, whether it's helping Victoria as she goes to, to Africa, if it's helping the Nehemiah house as they minister to those in need here in Bartlesville, kingdom over comfort is the model of, of service. Jesus violates these norms, not to be edgy, but to show that his kingdom cuts against our comfort. And yet, it violates a sense of decorum. And so here, here is the part that we want to focus on. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, I don't know if Jesus has ever replied this to you at one point in your life, but... He has me. You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Another observation I have in this passage is that just like us, 
Peter thinks that he is honoring Jesus by denying access to his dirty, smelly feet. He thinks he is elevating Jesus by withholding his dirt, his stench, his feet. He thinks he's honoring Jesus by withholding those things, but in fact, he is rejecting him. In fact, what he's doing by withholding his dirt from Jesus is an attempt, in his own heart at least, to dethrone Jesus. Because one of the things that Jesus teaches is that in this kingdom, the thrones look very strange. His cross in John's gospel is repeatedly spoken of as a moment of enthronement, a moment of glory or exaltation, which is a very strange moment of enthronement. And so while Peter thinks he's honoring Jesus by withholding his smelly feet, he's actually rejecting Christ. And Christ sees this foot washing. Many things in John's gospel are spoken of as signs, and surely the foot washing is a sign. It is an encapsulation of Jesus's whole ministry, and it's an encapsulation more than anything else of his death, what he's come to be and to do, to serve, serve those below him. And so there's this sense that I think most of us have that if I laid all of my dirt before Jesus, it'd be embarrassing for both of us. So I'll just hide it. I'll deal with it myself behind closed doors. I won't tell anybody. I'll I'll work on it. I'll keep coming to church. But I will not give him my dirty smelly feet, it would be embarrassing. It would violate decorum, Peter says. And in some ways, that's what I mean by decorum as the unforgivable sin. It's not a sin in most cases. It's certainly not unforgivable as something that Christ can't forgive. But what happens is when we put appearances over healing and respectable appearances over healing and repentance. We don't bring God our dirt. And so Jesus turns to us and says with all love in his heart, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. It's not unforgivable on God's end, but it's unbrought on our end. We don't present it to him. And in some ways, I would term this the sin of the suburbs. And I'm fully aware that Bartlesville is not a suburb. (laughs) But there is this sense sometimes in certain segments of American culture that we value appearance over healing. I know I do. I know I sit back at night sometimes and replay the stupid things that I've said during the day and think about like, oh, no, oh, oh. It's not so much that I vow that I like replay the, the, the bad things that I've done, but I replay the things that made me look bad in the eyes of others. And so the sin of the suburbs is this withholding of our dirt from God because we value appearance over, over healing in this way. And, and this, this is a danger for many of us. 
we hold it back in terms of repentance and we don't want to admit that we have a problem because of how that would reflect on us. We hold back in terms of transformation and so we're okay with repentance but we're not okay with change. And you don't want to lay it out there before the appropriate fellow believers or before Christ so that we don't find healing. And Jesus says to us, just as he says to Peter, but unless I wash you, you have no part in me. I need, I need you to bring me your dirt and not just your trophies. Amen? My grandpa was one of my heroes. He's in his 90s now. And uh, he's a pastor for, in the same small town for 70 years, more than that. Um, they call him the Pope of the Plains. <laughs> He, he was a well-educated guy, a bright guy. He was also the school superintendent in addition to being a pastor in, in, out in western Kansas. He was a proud man. He was the guy that people came to with their stuff, not the guy who you know, admitted that he was struggling or hurting. And He came from a generation, many of you know, that lived through the Great Depression and didn't talk about that kind of thing. And my dad told a story one time of my grandpa later in life, and he was going through a hard time. One of his children was, was struggling in a mighty way, a powerful way, and he, my grandpa was visiting us, and he was at a prayer meeting with my dad in a church, and the church that I grew up in, there was a lot of people just getting out of jail, a lot of people trying to get off drugs. It was not a church full of just like a bunch of really, you know, people who felt really successful, and there was my grandpa in the prayer circle, and people were taking turns being prayed for, and Grandpa, as he often was, was just silent. He was the one doing the praying, not the one receiving the praying. And so it got to the end of the meeting, and my dad said, oh, is there anybody else that wants prayer? And he knew my grand could see my grandpa kind of fighting, fighting against it, the admission that he needed prayer. And he said, I'll never forget, he, he violently got up out of the seat, just the fastest he'd seen my grandpa move in years probably, and plopped down in the seat and just dissolved as these people, some of whom may be just getting out of jail or trying to get off drugs, prayed for him. And there is this sense, it doesn't matter who you are, but unless I wash you, unless you bring me your dirt, you have no part in me. That's the third point. What's your dirt? What do you need to bring to Jesus so that he can wash you? The fourth one. Last thing in this passage. And this is the transition to mission. And it's simply this, that your capacity to serve will always be limited by your intimate awareness that you have been served. Your capacity to serve other people will always be limited by how aware you are, how intimately aware you are that you yourself have been served, that you yourself have been forgiven. It will always be limited by that. Verse 14, Jesus lays this out and makes it crystal clear. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now that I've done it, I'm calling 
you to do it. And there is this sense sometimes I think our service is limited in the kingdom because we don't think we really have been served all that much ourselves. We think we've sort of pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps. We've kind of earned our way in life. We've made good decisions. And so our ability to serve others is hamstrung by the fact that we don't understand the extent to which we've been served ourselves. And so Jesus gives this, this visual crash course in service. The scriptures say at another point, what do you have that you have not been given? What do you have that's your own? Nothing. You've been, you've been served. You've been graced. You've been gifted. And that's the motivation to serve others. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. I read a, a book recently by a guy named Mike. Science Mike is his sort of gnome de plume. And um, he, he talks about his life. He grew up Southern Baptist, very conservative. He um, was a deacon at a young age. And then through a series of events, his parents' marriage fell apart and he found himself losing faith. And he says in this book, he says, I lived for almost two years as, quote, the world's least interesting secret agent, an undercover atheist in a Southern Baptist church. <laughs> And he said, I lost my faith, but I love my family too much to tell them. And so I baptized my oldest daughter as an avowed atheist with tears streaming down my face. And he recounts not just the losing of his faith, but some of the events that brought him back to a kind of Christian faith. And he says, I was attending a conference in Southern California, and I was there on work, ostensibly. It was a group of pastors, but I was there on work because I'd been tasked with setting up a portion of the meeting's website. And he says, upon arrival, I was intrigued because this group of mostly Christians were surprisingly literate in science and scientific matters, which was kind of Mike's thing. And, and so he, he was sort of intrigued by them, sort of endeared to them in a way, but he, he was frustrated because many of them still believed in God. And so he unleashed a torrent at one point in the conference of critiques and questions against Christian faith. And he ended that torrent with a question. He said, how can anyone who understands the universe and how it works believes, believe in God? And he says this about their response. He says, I threw the fullness of my doubt about God at them and they held it with grace. They didn't shout me down or take apart my arguments. They didn't try to win me over or rebuke me. They just accepted me. And they even thanked me for caring. When I look back at that moment in that room with 50 strangers, I imagine what would have happened if they had done something different. My path, he says, back to God was paved with grace by those who received my doubt in love. But he remarks that his atheism was, was completely unfazed in spite of that gracious reaction. He said at the end of the conference, the participants were invited to receive communion. And as he recalls, I thought it was a corny way to end what had been an amazing conference, but I folded my arms and I listened anyway. And the message involved the ordinariness of bread and wine. Simple protons, neutrons, and electrons, which become sacred as they are set aside for a special purpose. 
Building upon that theme, the speaker's point was that humanity too has been set aside for a purpose to be broken and poured out for others in service. And to my ears, he says, that sounded like humanism and I was all for it and its altruistic aims. So I decided to go with it, to pray, and I even stood up to take communion. Then came the part that he says sounds crazy. After having second thoughts on the way to the front, I decided to walk away. But just when I was about to turn, I heard a voice say, I was here when you were eight, and I'm here now. In shock and confusion, I took the bread, and I ran from the room with tears streaming. And he says, I had this question, what happened? What happened as a science guy? Later, after scouring the scientific literature, the closest explanation I could find was a hallucination aided by a highly suggestive state, pinup emotion, and a kind of semi-hypnosis. Yet on that particular night, I found myself alone on the beach and praying. God, I can't unlearn all the things that made me believe you aren't real. They're still there. And they're still telling me you can't exist. He poured out all of his complaints and questions to God. But he says, one thing I know, I met Jesus tonight. And he talks about standing on the beach. I have a picture of the waves here. He says, when I said the word Jesus, the waves rushed toward me. And I was standing high up on the beach, 25 feet or more above where the water had stopped. But the waves still rushed up and over my feet, all the way up to my shins. And I thought about what the speaker had said, that Christ's last act of service before his crucifixion was to wash the feet of his followers. And I said, is that you, God? Is this really happening? And the whole world fell away, like the veil had been lifted from the face of a bride on our wedding day. Last week we had communion. This week we talk about Jesus washing the feet, not just of Simon Peter, but of all of us by his actions on the cross. And he says to all of us, do not let your sense of decorum keep you from me another minute. Your sense of what would feel embarrassing, your sense of what is outside the bounds of what's normally comfortable for you. Don't let decorum be your unforgivable sin because unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And he wants to wash you. Whether that's for the first time if you don't know Christ at all, whether that's for the millionth time after you've fallen short and need his grace again, he wants to wash us just as he did his disciples. And so let's do this. Let's pray. We're going to close today in a different way. But let's bow. For many of you, this will be uncomfortable. And that's the point. If you're saying today, God, I need you to wash me, to transform me. I need your grace in my life in a special way. 
I would like you to do the uncomfortable thing, the thing that might break normal decorum, and just stand up. Just stand up. And to allow those around you to do exactly what my grandpa's friends in that small country church did for him, and that is to lay a hand on you and pray for you. Say, you're not alone. We love you. We support you. We're in this together. So if you say, God, I want you to wash me. I want you to do a work in my life. I accept your grace. I want you to stand right where you are. And if you're near someone who's standing, I want you to place a hand on them and pray for them right now. And they say, you're not alone right now. It's not going to be comfortable. That's the point. God, we thank you that you are a God whose kingdom cuts against our comfort, that pulls us out of our comfort zones. We thank you that you are a God who breaks decorum, even to the point of washing the feet of us lowly humans to show us the full extent of your love. And so, Lord, right now, right now, Lord, we pray for the empowerment to serve as you served, to lower ourselves in service without even a speck of shame because we know exactly who our Father is. We know exactly what he's done for us. Lord, I pray for my, my friends who are standing right now and the courage it takes to say in the words of the old hymn, Lord, it's not my brother or my sister or my mother, Lord, it's me standing in the need of prayer. So I thank you for that courage. And I pray as, as those individuals are being prayed for right now that they will have this sense that they are not alone, that they are loved, that they are washed and empowered because of the blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you came to wash us white as snow, not because we deserved it, but because we didn't. And so we take delight in our identity in you, in our forgiven status before you because of Jesus' work alone. And Lord, we thank you that you wash us because of Christ's work. But we pray that you would also empower us to go forth and to do likewise, to serve others in the name of Jesus in the same way that we've been served ourselves. Lord, it's in Christ's name that we celebrate together. Amen. 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 Would you go in peace this week and have a fantastic week?